Welcome to your third BA Supervision, the podcast where we talk about the joys of working in mental health over a cold brew. My name is Aaron Rajamani, and I'm here with my co-host, Jesse Richardson. How are you this week, Jesse? How have been? Oh, yeah, mate. I am, I am loving life. Uh, round Ooh. three, ready to go. Yes, very exciting. Um, and it's a bit different this week, but how about you tell us a bit about what we're doing for this podcast for those who are maybe new to what we do? Yep, so uh, this is the Beer Supervision Podcast, and it is a podcast where Aaron and myself uh, chat about uh, mental health and working in, in mental health as early career mental health clinicians um, over a nice nice cold beer. Yeah, that is my idea of an awesome time. Um, but it's even more exciting because this week we have a special guest mm. where we're so keen for. Um, we have... Josh West here with us. Very exciting. Say hello, Josh, to our listeners. What's up, fellas? So good to be here. <laughs> what a treat. Oh, <laughs> my God. Um, yeah. And uh, Josh, uh, we've invited him along because he has some really interesting insights into mental health. Um, and he has a pretty um, perspective that's pretty unique, um, at least compared to us because um, of his profession. Josh, how about you tell us a bit about what you do in mental health? In general. Sure. Uh, first of all, long-time listener, first-time caller. So <laughs> thank you for having me. This is, this is fantastic. Will you save me that one up? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I'm, uh, I, I've worked with Aaron and Jesse for six months in child and adolescent mental health. Um, I'm a uh, doctor with general registration doing my specialty training in psychiatry. Uh, so I'm a, I'm a doctor that's specializing in mental health. Awesome. Yeah. And so we're going to, um, in this podcast, um, ask Josh a bunch of questions about what that looks like, what um, unique things um, his profession deals with in mental health. Um, and then we'll go on to our main topic for this evening. But before we get to that, very important, time for the beer. Yes, oh, my favourite part. Yeah. Now, uh, the first two weeks, I I failed to deliver, Aaron. Uh, oh. Let's <laughs> I'm not, not, not going to shy away from it. I wasn't going to say anything. I let the team down. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, I told you I'd bring you a gift plan to be up. And, well, this week, um, Aaron and I did it. I, I did a bit of uh, planning and I went down to Dan Murphy's yesterday to Ooh, pick this one up and put outrageous. it in the fridge. And so <laughs> I have got for us today a Grand Ridge Hat Lifter Stout. Now, the okay. Grand Ridge Hat Lifter Stout is brewed in... Merbu North. Merbu... <laughs> How did you know that? This is not my first rodeo to the Grand Ridge Brewery. <laughs> oh, so Aaron and I are, are new to the uh, the Grand Ridge, uh, but it sounds like Josh is well-versed with, uh, with this drop. Oh, so, it's a real treat. Yeah, yeah we're, we're yeah. in for a good episode. Yeah. Oh, very nice. Uh, Merbu um, North is a beautiful. I've been there a few times. Yes. Very nice. Yes, this yeah. is a nice part of the world. Mm. Um, hopefully, the, this uh, this stout is just as beautiful as the uh, as the place it was brewed. Oh, yeah. Now, um, unfortunately, um, Aaron, you don't have a bottle opener. I may have neglected to have a bottle opener. Yes. I, uh, um, and so. How, so how we, we so we're not going to be able to drink the beers, yeah. unfortunately. We can no. them. They're quite nice. Yeah, no. Just imagine what it would be like. Yeah, I imagine yeah. good good yeah. things. Yeah. Rolling Hills, Mabu North. Yeah, that's good. It's a fun label. It's good. <laughs> yeah. It's in a cardboard six pack. Like, looks very sturdy. Yeah. Wow. Solid um, 5.5 out of 10, I reckon. I yeah. hope it's nice. <laughs> it's 
It's I mean, I can't wait to dream about nah, it. We're, we're yeah. going to learn. Um, we're learning a very special trick. I've brought um, a spoon to Josh, and Josh is going to teach us the fine art of opening a bottle with a spoon. All right. Yeah, so we've got a dessert spoon here, and uh, this is what they teach you in four years of undergrad at uni. Oh, oh that was that crisp. Um, and you told us the secret to opening with um, a spoon. For those listening at home who have not had the privilege of doing that, what's the secret? You, you wedge it in okay. and your thumb braces yep. it underneath. I'm so doing it's like it. a strong lever. Yep. Now you don't push the spoon lever arm down. Okay. That'll just crush your thumb. Yep. So you flick your thumb up. Flick your thumb up. Oh, he's good. Yeah. Incredible. All right, Jesse. Jesse. Fresh, pressure's on. I don't know how I feel about this. <laughs> I don't have the best well, cord and cord. All your credibility as a yeah. psychologist rests on this. <laughs> oh, that was was an attempt. Oh, oh, you're so close. Little, little hiss. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just bent it up slightly. <laughs> I failed. Jesse, <laughs> I couldn't do it. I'm giving up. Oh, okay. Josh has come in to save the day for Jesse. Oh, Good. thank you, Josh. As usual. That's, that's as usual. <laughs> <laughs> Savage. Clean up your mess. <laughs> That's cheap, <Yeah>. boy. <laughs> oh. Right? Oh, that yeah. is good. Not, not that is horribly nice. Vegemite. It's mm. like just a... It's a nice, smooth, yeah. dark... Flavor. Yeah. That's yeah. good. Mm. Oh, that is good. I needed that. Um, Excellent. All oh. right. So, on with the show. Um... So, um, for the first part of this week, we're going to be exploring um, psychiatry, uh, a bit about what its role is in mental health, um, as well as exploring later on um, what the kind of challenges we have in mental health, um, specifically in approaching clients that maybe we find frustrating or tiring, challenging, difficult, whatever it might be. Mm. Um, so that's a big thing that often comes up in mental health, and so that's something we also to discuss. Um, but yeah, how about we start uh, first, Josh? What is psychiatry what's its role in mental health uh psychiatry and psychiatrists are uh, medical physicians um that are specialized in mental health and the role that it has on uh, our well-being and our physical health um so much like um, the disciplines of social work and psychology it's a pretty broad um type of training that we receive um, so that we can best do our role. Um, it's it's truly uh, biopsychosocial in that we, um, as, as prescribers and as physicians, sure, we can do medication management, we can monitor side effects and do all the physical investigations that you might need being on some of these um, sometimes dangerous medications, but we're also trained broadly in um, in psychology and the, the social determinants of health as well. So the role of psychiatry in the mental health system is um, most people's exposure would be if they're at an inpatient unit um, at a hospital, a, a classic psych ward that would be run by a consultant psychiatrist, but that's, that's really only a small... Um, section of of psychiatry a lot of a lot of um 
psychiatry specialists actually practice outpatient either in private they do some of them do exclusively psychotherapy which is very interesting some of them do um, predominantly medication management um, they can run private hospitals do interventional psychiatry so things like tms and ect or shock therapy right. um, and and working in a role like community mental health you're sort of the um captain of the ship so to speak um mm. at the end of the day you have a team that that works with you and um you know you may have a series of case managers and you sort of direct them and, and give um support and, and advice um about how they can best manage their their patients yeah so yeah a lot of the teams that i've worked with often the kind of buck stops with the lead psychiatrist of that team mm. they make the mm. kind of final decisions about risk or what the diagnosis might be and yeah. plans forward it's um, ultimately it's a pretty tremendous responsibility at the end mm. of the day because you sign off on what the risk is you make the decisions about uh, whether they are to be admitted or whether they can stay as an outpatient um if if uh, something goes wrong and the coroners come knocking, it's the psychiatrist mm, right. that gets yeah. pulled into it. Um, <laughs> so you have to you have to um, really justify a lot of your clinical decision making and have some really um, sort of robust tools and and training to be able to do that. Um, also, they have a role in the legal system as well. Um, in that we operate under the Mental Health Act um, of 2014 here in Victoria, and it's. Um, psychiatrists do a lot of that sort of paperwork in terms of um, making someone mm. voluntary or involuntary or right. um, keeping, you know, uh, prescribing ECT, involuntary, things like that. Um, so there's a big crossover with yeah. both uh, medicine and law. Mm. Right. So it sounds like huge amount of uh, weight of decision-making and a fair bit of accountability there uh, yep. for, for psychiatrists. Um, how, do you, how do you go, I guess... Um, you know, managing that and you know because that that is quite a big responsibility to have you know yep. the, the um you know the notion of sectioning someone mm. under the mental health mm -hmm. act is is pretty pretty big thing to do um you know what's what's it like i guess working with i guess that degree of um you know decision making and accountability on your shoulders mm. Um, it can be pretty difficult. It can be um, draining and you do sort of doubt yourself quite a bit. Um, I think the danger comes from when you practice in isolation mm. um, because then you you lose the sounding board of your peers and your colleagues to, to um, justify your own decisions or run things by them. So actually one of the big things in psychiatry, which is really great, is, is uh, peer supervision. <laughs> <laughs> play on oh. little said the name of the podcast and the podcast there almost we did it we did um, it we've come full circle Thanks. so highly highly important um to be able to do that to have people that you trust and other colleagues to bounce ideas off um it's it's very collaboratory which is which is fantastic not mm. just in a multidisciplinary sense working with psychologists and social workers and nursing staff and and ot's but working with other psychiatrists is is always helpful and it's um i think i'm learning more and more to be able to put up my hand and say i don't know to, mm. in order to answer a question or not be put on the spot to be able to say leave it with me I'm going to consult some of my seniors or my colleagues and, and, yeah. and get back to you. And that's a big, um, a big step to take. Yeah. That's a, like a really, I think, fantastic skill to learn there, that, that one of being able to, able to say and to, to um, you know, highlight the fact that you don't know, mm. in, um, not just in mental health and um, 
you know, the mental health care system, but, you know, life more generally. Mm. Yeah, no, I definitely um, fight a lot in mental health where good decisions come from conversations with other people in the team mm. and really nutting it out rather than just having it all in your own head and necessarily just figuring it out yourself. And it's not only just with the team, but also with um, clients as well. Be yeah. honest when you aren't, you don't know exactly um, what the answer is and being able to go back and discuss it and not feeling like you're in control or know exactly what this person is thinking or what they do or don't need to do, but mm. letting go a little bit so that you can take in the full picture um, mm. and uh, be, I guess, honest about the limitations of your own capacity. Mm. Yeah. And, Let's uh, be real. Mm. We, we make better decisions when we, are, when we consult with the team. Mm. This podcast, Aaron. Ooh. This is a team consultation sort of podcast, this isn't is it? true, yeah. This is an MDT meeting. This, is, <laughs> this, is, this came from an MDT meeting. Like yeah. Aaron and I were just, just chilling in the office and we're like, hey, we should start a podcast. It's like, oh, here we go. <laughs> Evidence. Yes. Evidence of collaboration at work. <laughs> and, and I think one of the, just quickly, sorry mm. to interject, one of the yeah. good things about psychiatry is um, that, there's this real sense that you're, and in psychology, there's this real sense that you're standing on the shoulders of giants, like all these day-to-day challenges that we have, and we'll touch base with some of the, what's it like working with some some challenging patients or, or some challenging interactions. Um, this this stuff was talked about and and figured out a hundred years ago. This mm-hmm. was published by the big the big wigs of of the field. They mm-hmm. they were thinking about this stuff back then. So even if you don't have access to someone that has the answer, you can look back at Freud or Klein, and they they've they've written about this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's really awesome. It's very few fields of medicine, I think, that you're still using very relevant um, um, studies um, from so mm-hmm. long ago, right. or using practices that are that are so. so from from history yeah right okay um so why did you choose psychiatry uh, well doing the role that you are um mm. of, of the things that you could have chosen not even just being a doctor but also this specific kind of yeah doctor, yeah I suppose. um oh okay how did i get here so i was watching a lot of scrubs when i was about 15 <laughs> <laughs> so good um, and i sort of didn't really know what being a doctor meant, but it looked really fun. <laughs> um, and so I, th- I sort of thought you could just do it. Like it was just like any degree, you just go into it because you choose to want to do it. And then I found it's actually quite hard to get into mm-hmm. medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I started studying uh, actually at about 15 before that. I sort of <laughs> wasn't. Um, Zach Abraff, what an inspiration. He, he is. I think, <laughs> I think I've messaged him on social media. No! <laughs> And I'm sure the reason I got into medicine. I'm sure I'm not the only one (laughs) watching Turk and JD. Um, But no, I sort of, yeah, tried to pull my head in, tried to do study. I did pretty well in VCE, but not quite well enough to do medicine. Um, And I sort of um, started a a Bachelor of Biomedical Science um, at Monash University, which took me four years to do. I snuck in with my VCE scores in like humanities, like I was really into history and literature and English mm. and a little bit of biology, but the sciences and the maths were my sort of weak point. So I learned that through university, four years of biomed. Um, at the end of that, I sort of had my academic focus in, in psychopharmacology and bioethics. So I think even back then I can sort of mm. see where things were going. Um, and got into got into postgrad medicine, um, which was a four year degree, um, 
And actually at the time of getting in, I was pretty keen to be a, a pathologist. Okay. Um, because in my undergrad, I was working part-time in a, in a lab as a science tech um, or as a lab tech in right. pathology. And um, I found that really interesting, like the um, pathophysiology of disease. And you can look at things and definitively say this is and isn't mm. um, a disease state. Um, and then that just a complete 180 almost as soon as starting medicine, once we started learning about history taking and how to how to elicit information from people and the different techniques you can use to to build that rapport to get them to trust you to to have that connection um and pretty much from very early on i, I just decided i probably want to do psychiatry right. um and have sort of not really wavered from that since i had a couple of ideas of maybe going to gp but as things just turned out i think i was just always gonna end up in in this field it just really appeals to me um you sort of Medicine's great. Anyone that's listening that's thinking of doing that, I think there's room for everyone. You can always find a specialty or a subspecialty that that fits. And and with psychiatry, I just sort of found my people. They were very much like me. Mm. Um, I really loved the work. I found it challenging and stimulating. Um, and I could just see myself doing it forever. Never a dull day, huh? Never a dull day. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you mentioned you mentioned at the start that you're so you're still um, just a, a general general doctor at the moment so well you're a psychiatry yeah, registrar just. thanks for that yeah, so, <laughs> um, yeah. not that impressive just yeah. a doctor no, but, uh, so you're, you're, oh, so you're a, a psychiatry registrar so what, tell, tell us a bit about what that what that means um what that means is <laughs> you're just a general doctor still a solid b plus it's good to have a hobby good to get out of the house isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Go, go, sorry, go. sorry. I'm just, I'm just, uh, yeah. just taking jabs at you as we do, as we used to do at work quite often. Um, so I, uh, it means that I'm, I'm currently on the training program to become a psychiatrist. Um, mm. You can't just become a doctor, call yourself a psychiatrist mm. or a surgeon or a GP. You become a doctor first, do your provisional tr- year as an intern get your general registration, and then you specialise. Right. And you specialise in whatever field you're interested in with the relevant college of training that is in charge of accreditation and basically allowing someone to call themselves, I am this type of profession. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm in the training program with the Royal Australian New Zealand College of Psychiatrists at the moment, up to stage two of my training. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, which means that I'm on the pathway of learning very directly, um, almost like an apprenticeship. Like I have a, a consultant psychiatrist as a supervisor um, and I learn on the job, so to speak. Um, and that's a five-year training program. Mm. Cool. Mm. All right. So last thing I want to talk about before we move on to our next topic, but I think something that will be really interesting is um, when you're working in some, I guess, reasonably high-pressure environments at times. I know mm. you work, um, at the moment, you're working in the hospital, yep. um, working um, as a clinical liaison, so doing, like, um, consults um, for um, medical parts of the hospital. Yep. Um, but also you've, you know, worked in other kind of adult teams and child teams and kind of mm. potentially some high-risk and high-pressure situations. Obviously, you talked about a bit about that before. Um what do you do to kind of maintain your own mental health and your own kind of self-care during that? 
You know you can just buy alcohol, right? <laughs> no, no, that's a joke. That's that's totally a joke. I don't endorse maladaptive. Here at Supervision, yeah. we drink responsibly. We're all having a one solid delicious beer yes. this evening. Yeah. Uh, just so you're aware. Uh, that was just one of my jokes. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> what psychiatrists are known for? Classic. <laughs> Classic. Classic. Um, no, no, yeah, it is, it is incredibly, incredibly important. And if you think about um, my rotations that I've done, um, probably the most high stress one that you're alluding to would be um, adult inpatient psychiatry, mm. um, inpatient psych ward in the public health system. Mm. Um, that is, no matter where you go, a tremendously chaotic and stressful environment mm. um, where there is a huge amount of bed pressure um, and pressure from the hospital to have uh, turnover of patients because the bed demand is always present. Um, the therapies or the management that you can offer is almost exclusively biological. Mm. So it feels like you're selling yourself short in terms of your skills and what you can bring to the table. Right. The threshold for admission is incredibly high because of the demand. So the people that you see are the acutely, acutely unwell. Mm -hmm. And that all creates a bit of a perfect storm um, of just absolute chaos. Um, it, it's it's almost like the emergency department equivalent, but for psych. Right. You only see the worst of the worst, and it's just very hectic. Um, so that's that's probably the the um, crucible of the training. You, you you come out, it builds character <laughs> to, to do that. Yeah. But um, very, very challenging to, to get through that. And I did six months of that. Well, I did a little bit more before starting my training. But that's probably about as much as I could handle in one in one um, yeah, okay. rotation before mm. moving on to others. So um, looking after yourself, your own self-care, um, preserving your own sanity in these work conditions is very important. Um, luckily, um, the employer that, that I work for, that we all work for, um, they were very supportive. Um, we get um, looked after by our uh, training representatives and our director of training. He's always very involved and invested in our well-being and our own mental health. Um, it's usually nine to five, Monday to Friday with some on call. Mm. Um, so typically you do get weekends off. You do get time to recharge. You get a half day for training. Um, okay. you get to have these opportunities to just have a little bit of a breather. Mm -hmm. Um, but separate to that, I think, um, yeah, you know, we, we do get our own individual supervision, which yeah. is pretty substantial. Um, like we get two to four hours one-on-one -on -one with our primary consultant every week. Well, that's, that is substantial. Yeah. yeah. Right. On top of like other stuff. So we get supervision from other sources as yeah. well. So I think they mm. realize that it's a pretty unsustainable type of work that really leads to burnout mm. and, and, and high degrees of stress. So they, they're mindful of that and that's appreciated. And then on top of that, obviously you've got what you can do yourself. So, you know, maintaining a, a, a healthy lifestyle, eating well, sleeping well, looking after yourself. Smoking meats. Smoking meats. Yes. Yes. Ooh, <laughs> delicious. Um, <laughs> that's one of my little hobbies. It's fun to have a hobby to get into. So uh, I, I got into 
um, American low and slow barbecuing uh, and just <laughs> just threw myself obsessively into that body of knowledge. And that was last year. This year it's gardening. So oh. if you want to make a, a, a supplementary podcast about the soil structure <laughs> and permanent agriculture policies, I, I could um, I could talk about that for some time. It's <laughs> <laughs> quite the offer. Let's do it. Why not? Uh, Call it weed supervision. <laughs> oh wait, no, <laughs> no, let's let's not do that. Eh? <laughs> all right, we will cut that. <laughs> you can just do a one-off on April twentieth. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good. solid. solid. <laughs> okay. uh, uh, all right. Um, before we move on, how are we going with the beers? How are we feeling? Yeah, it's yeah good. They're, they're delicious. I think just yeah. like any stout, though, the the warmer it gets, the less palatable it is. So mm. you sort of don't want to leave it sitting for too long. But I, I think yeah. it's really tasty, really delicious. Yeah, like I, I like dark beers in general. It kind of reminds me of like the White Rabbit Dark Ale. Yeah. That's similar yeah, flavor to that. It's yeah. really good. I like it. Almost like if you closed your eyes, you wouldn't, it, you know, it doesn't have that you know, like thick Guinness sort of mm. uh, mouthfeel. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> nah, nah, nah. Um, yeah, no, Hatlifter Stout, uh, my dad's favourite beer. Oh, so, dad. yeah, oh, yeah that's how I know it. Doing it, doing it proud. Yeah. yeah. So listeners out there would recommend, just, right. just give it a crack. Right. Even if you're not a stout person, I think this is pretty inoffensive. Yeah, I um, I don't drink a lot of stout um, and yeah, I'm, I'm finding this to actually be a really decent, yeah, right? decent uh, drink. Really enjoying it. So, um, shall we press on? Mm-hmm. So, we've got for, um, yeah, I guess extended discussion this week. Um, we're going to have a bit of a chat about how, how we deal with challenging clients in, uh, you know, working, working with mental health and, um, you know, going to have a bit of a chat about some difficult presentations that we, uh, we've come across, how we, uh, yeah, how we go about engaging tricky clients and, um, you know, maybe conveying, a bit of uh, you know, empathy for clients who we he, we really struggle to maybe connect with and who are a little bit pricklier. So, mm. yeah, mm. um, I think it's uh, my my ability to deal with clients that I find challenging or exhausting is definitely dependent on my own state of mind at the time. I mean, I think. Um, when I'm feeling charged and engaged and interested, a complex client or a client that's challenging is almost like, oh, this is an interesting challenge or this is something I want to try and figure out. Whereas when I'm tired or maybe feeling overworked or I'm just not that into it, then it's like, a, okay, this is a thing that I need to deal with now. Um, I've come at it with a very different mindset. I, I think that's something I've really noticed about myself. Mm. Um, but yeah, I guess, what would you say, what would you guys say is, specifically maybe something that you feel like that's something that kind of rubs me the wrong way or makes it hard for me to deal with a client you reckon Hmm. josh you uh you you got anything yeah i think i I would definitely agree with you aaron that's very perceptive to learn that early on that if you're if if biologically you're not functioning at your peak in terms of tiredness or stress Mm. or illness Mm. or exhaustion you're going to be at risk of not being able to handle these encounters professionally as you would normally. Mm. Um, that's something I've really noticed, particularly if I'm on call. There mm. might be a point where I've worked, you know, I'm into my 20th hour straight mm. and I just don't 
have the capacity or the reserve to to deal with a challenging client mm. um, or patient on the ward, and and sometimes it's it's just safer to defer that for follow up by the doctor the next day rather mm. than know that you're going to go in not with your best foot forward and potentially make things worse. Right. Um, you're not giving a fair enough um, assessment for them. You're not you're not giving them what they rightfully should get, which is an, an objective professional interaction with a doctor at that point. Yeah, right. It's like, you know, we yeah, in, in mental health, we encourage people <coughs> to uh, really be mindful and take um, – take good care of their, their physical health uh, because we know that that leads to good mental health as well. Mm. And so it's like, you know, we, we in the mental health sort of uh, field have to have to practice what we preach in that regard. We can't make good decisions or, or do our job effectively if we're not taking care of ourselves. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but in terms of, um, you know, your question of is there is there certain things that you've identified as maybe like, you know, the thorn in your side, the little mm, that yeah, thing that seems yeah. to keep triggering you each yeah, like, time. What is it something that like people getting into the field should be looking out for in terms of interactions with yeah. clients that are likely to they need to be prepared for? Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, yep, sure. Um I, I think a uh, little little callback to show that I've been following this <laughs> podcast. You mentioned in episode one or maybe two about being really bright-eyed and bushy-tailed during study and thinking, oh, this won't happen to me. Then you come into the field and from your experience, you're just like everyone else. We all experience stress and burnout and fatigue. Um, I think people should be aware of that, um, that it does happen to the best of us. It's Mm. not a result of personal failing. I think, if anything, it's a result of a a field that is under-resourced that asks too much of the people that that work in it right and it's a systemic error it's an institutional problem mm-hmm. uh and it's going to happen to everyone yeah. um and and to just accept that and to be perceptive and mindful enough when it happens um for me personally um if we talk about i don't do you, do you want to go into counter-transference is this going to be educational? Oh, I mean, we could do that. I mean, like, it's, it's not, we weren't planning to be educational. We could do it. You know, yeah. just go by the seat of our pants. Go, yeah. Okay. All right. Educate us. All right. Little, little <laughs> impromptu toot here. Um, okay. That word that I just said, counter-transference. If there are mental health students out there listening to this podcast or people that are interested in it, they may have come across this term before. Um, and very, very brief history. Um, counter-transference is... Um, you can describe it as what feelings do you have as the therapist have towards your patient? Mm. Um, and it's a, it's a counter towards what the patient are transferring onto you. So they, they see you and they meet you and you say, hi, my name's Aaron. I'll be working with you as your case manager. And they might say, oh, lovely to meet you. You're such a nice guy. You remind me of someone that I met a couple of years ago. Uh, and he was really kind as well. He was a good bloke. Um, so they're not, they're not taking you at face value as a new person. They're, they're transferring, mm. uh, their expectations mm. and experiences of a previous relationship that's quite similar, um, onto you. Yeah. And the way that you respond to that is called the, the counter transference. Um, and it can be, it's it's made by a number of things. Initially, they thought it was, or Freud thought that this is a, uh, the patient is transferring their feelings they have towards their parents onto me, and it's a barrier to therapy. 
Um, so it's all historical. It's not what's happening in the room. Now we understand that, yes, it's from historical relationships as well as what's happening in the room. So it's a dynamic state, mm. um, as well as also there are personality clashes. So some people you just find abrasive for mm. some reason or another. They're not projecting anything onto you. You're not doing anything or bringing anything yourself to the table, but you just clash. Okay. And those are the ways that you can end up having difficult interactions, I think. Um, right. if you, if you identify something in the patient that's similar to you, if they project something onto you, or if there's a personality clash, any of those ways can, mm. can lead to a, diff a potentially difficult interaction. So it's very important to be aware of these things. They're not scary. They're not things you should not say that happen. Mm. They're actually really useful pieces of information um, right. to help moving forward. Um, so when this happens to all of you out there that are listening, working in mental health in future, don't be scared of it. It's okay. Take it to your supervisor, discuss it and confront it and move forward. Um, for me, I think there's a certain patient population that I find uh, challenging to deal with that brings up strong emotions in me. I think an example would be when I was working in child and adolescent mental health. Mm. And when I, when I came across a patient that um, I grew really fond of and he reminded me so much of myself at his age mm. and then he encountered um, a very specific type of adversity that I also encountered at his right. age. Yeah. And it just, um, it, it made me feel very um, angry that mm. this could happen to him, this injustice, and I really wanted to fight for him. Mm. Um, when actually it, he didn't see it as a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in, in that moment, I, yeah. I was the one that was kicking off and saying, mm. no, you, you're blameless. You shouldn't, you know, this shouldn't have happened to you. And he was like, yeah, I'm, I'm cool, dude. That's yeah. fine. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. That, that was an example of me bringing my own stuff to the table. Mm. And um, I, had to, I had to moderate that and, and think about why is this causing such a strong reaction in me and who am I actually doing this for right now? Am I doing it for this patient in front of me or am I doing it for a younger version of myself? Yes. Yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a, um, a lot to consider when you're working with clients. It's not, yeah, it's, it's the, the practicalities of the service you're providing. But there's, mm. you, you're a human interacting with another human. You both have feelings and emotions and things you're bringing to the table and you can't just switch that off when you come into mm, the appointment mm. room and just be the objective clinician um just doesn't work like that yeah no like i mean you've got to be prepared i think when when those situations do arise to to really kind of engage in a bit of introspection with yourself mm. and, and have it have a sort of deep dive and reflection into okay why is why is this happening for me why why this client mm. and what about this situation is is having such an effect on me mm. um, and yeah, um, as as Josh was saying, it's not something you should shy away from. It's something that you know when you when you notice it, um, lean into it with curiosity. Um, Russ Harris would love me for saying that. Cool. <laughs> you've you've dropped the name, and I don't know. Acceptance. Uh, uh, oh. <laughs> yeah, just um. lean in. <laughs> oh no, my education. Come on, man. Like read a book. Oh no. <laughs> Exposed <laughs> for the fraud that I am. Um, <laughs> 
Um, yeah, I think I find um, particularly, I guess, working with clients that have a particular adversity that isn't necessarily their fault mm-hmm. or like is something that's not, not their fault, but something that's outside of their control. Yeah, like a tragedy, like a real yeah. injustice. Yeah, yeah or, or just like their systems around them that are perpetuating the mm. ill health that they're experiencing and it's not, yeah, it's not something that they can really change. It's happening to them. And I find that really quite frustrating to just um, deal with um, the symptoms of that and kind of almost kind of disheartening. And then I kind of maybe sometimes get angry with the systems in their life as opposed to, you know, just dealing with the symptoms and just kind of projecting outwards sometimes. Yeah, Mm. so I find that quite difficult. Um, I suppose also maybe clients that um, perhaps I feel like I know what, what it is they need to do in order to make the situation better, but they don't see it from my mm. perspective. Mm. And I'm like trying to constantly communicate to them in different ways. Mm. This is probably a good thing. This is probably a good thing. Have you thought about like this? And it's just, they're just not having a bar of it. And perhaps they're doing things that are going in the opposite direction in, in my perspective, making things worse for them. Mm. Um, yeah, I find that quite difficult to maintain empathy and objectivity and continually working with the same yeah. kind of passion yeah. Um, when I don't feel that coming back in terms it's, of their it's engagement. Frustrating. It's yeah. frustrating to see people not do what you're suggesting and not get better. Mm. Um, it's, it's, it's very frustrating. I think that's a more of a very general thing. That doesn't pertain to a particular population of patients. That could be any demographic yeah. that we see that doesn't do that. And I think it can be so hard if, if you're feeling that way, I think that means you're in too deep. I think that's a, a, a little litmus test that you're, you're invested more than they are. Mm. And, and I think at the end of the day, not means to be nihilistic here, but for one reason or another, and we do see people that maybe didn't choose to come and see us. They may be being coerced in one way or another. Yeah. Um, but we can't force someone to get better against yeah. their will. And yeah. we can only we can only present a, a management plan to them for them to choose to use or not. And just always be there for future and know that there's going to be resistance, there's going to be reluctance, it's going to take time to build that therapeutic relationship and that rapport to be able to maybe trust you. Mm. Um, but them rejecting your plan isn't a, a personal attack. Yeah, yeah, uh, right. And it doesn't it doesn't mean um, that you've somehow failed them. It just means they're not there yet. They're, yeah. they're pre-contemplative, we might say. Mm. Yeah. Okay. And I think that's, um, you know, for, for early early career mental health clinicians, that's actually a really big one to, to be on the lookout for. If you're trying something and you're getting nowhere with some clients, um, you know, there's it, it may be that you're actually doing a fantastic job mm. and, and the best job that you can do and there's nothing wrong with what you're doing, but just sometimes the client's not where they need to be yep. to make that change. And it's, it's, it's by no means a, um, uh, an assessment of your own ability as, as a clinician. So, mm. um, and I think that's um, if you're thinking about working in mental health, um, one of the, the big character features that I think would be very helpful is if you can accept ambivalence and, mm. and grey areas of things um, and sometimes accept things that are, that are conflicting or, or in opposition to each other. Um, it's human interactions and human nature. It's messy. It's not going to be clear cut. Mm. These, these disorders that we use in DSM, they're not even, 
they're not even clearly delineated by any biological boundary at all. They're, they're, they're all overlaps. So, you know, and, and the pathway of recovery has its ups and downs and, and sometimes you have to terminate a relationship because they're not ready um, and you just show that you're there to walk alongside them and give that support. Um, it can be very, I think, very frustrating if you're going to be very outcome focused. Mm. Uh, if your sense of satisfaction and, 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 and self-worth comes from how many patients you help get better mm. uh, and how quickly you can do that, I, th- I think that's going to lead you towards burnout and having mm. high expectations of, of people. And, and maybe that would make work a bit more challenging. Yeah. Mindsets that we all slip into, we all do. Yeah. I say that yeah, like it never yeah. happens. Yeah. We all fall into that, and sometimes we have to take a step back and check ourselves. Yeah, and you know, there's some clients we might, uh, you know, really partic- like enjoy working with more than others. Who um, we we do kind of slip into that more outcome. It's like, oh, we you know want you to get to this 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 mm. place because like you know you're really enjoyable to work with much more than some of the other clients that mm. I see. And then you're being being mindful of that. I think um, yeah, it's very easy to slip into. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, when you're under the pump and you're just, you know, you're hoping that your next client won't be too much of a drain on you because you're like, you're like, oh, my shift's nearly finished. Hopefully yeah. it's not too bad. And then you see one that's like, okay, this is going to take a lot of emotional energy or just like focus. You're like, it's, yeah, it's tough. It's tough in those moments to remember why you're doing what you're doing and to have the appropriate level of empathy and professionalism. Yeah, it's like you do not want to be scheduling those those really pointy clients right after lunch or from about 3.30. I think, in the <laughs> yeah, so basically just yeah. don't pencil them in in the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> Rip the Band-Aid, 9 a.m. Yeah, 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 pretty much. <laughs> oh. What about presentations? What are some presentations that you guys find uh, maybe a little bit harder to work with or um, that you find you've, you've come into a bit of difficulty in the past? Um, I think the one that's been on my mind more <clears throat> is probably um, situations where it's a matter of um, the family dynamics. Mm. Um, <laughs> so it's not specifically some um, illness per se, but it's, the nature of the relationship with um, the child and their parents or the different um, systems in their life that's um, perpetuating um, particular things, like maybe making them more um, depressed or anxious or whatever it might be. Um, And those um, things kind of perpetuating um, those things. And so the the client comes in um, wanting to resolve those symptoms, um, but you can't really resolve the symptoms until you deal with um, the systems around them. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes those systems, like um, maybe it's family or maybe it's at school or um, whatever it might be, don't see there to be a problem or don't feel, don't un- in, um, bought into the process of wanting to change in order to improve this person's life. Um, and so um, that's a challenging one because it's, um, I guess, one way you have to, communicate with a whole bunch of different stakeholders and try and um, communicate to them um, what needs to happen while also maintaining, um, giving the client as much control as they want to have and maintaining their privacy um, while still trying to affect some kind of change in their life um, and dealing with the immediate symptoms as well. 
Um, so some some of that is kind of also what kind of also a bit difficult about that is sometimes that's beyond the scope of what you can do yeah. as a clinician, um, especially maybe working in the acute end of mental health. Um, you only have a limited amount of time. You're dealing with very specific issues, um, specific symptoms or illnesses and things like that. And sometimes there isn't the space or the time um, to deal with all those things. And so I find that, um, yeah, I find that pretty challenging um, to know where the boundaries are of what I should or shouldn't do, what I can or can't do. And um, yeah. Yeah. Like how deep into that system do you dive? Yeah, yeah, because yeah, you could d- dive infinitely. There's so many yeah. that affect a person's <laughs> life. Um, but yeah, I guess. Yeah, there's only so much you can do. Um, so And there's only so much that a person may want you to do. Yeah. Um, and so you need to be mindful of that. Yeah. It's definitely, definitely a tricky... Tricky presentation to come up against, for sure. Josh? Um, I think I'm probably... There's not not a particular presentation that that I find challenging um, as such. I'm thinking about my role. It's normally my interactions are either... They're almost exclusively in the hospital these days, so I'm either seeing them on the receiving end of an admission or I'm seeing them in the general hospital. Um, so that's the level of acuity that I, I work with day to day. And there's not there's not one thing or another that's particularly challenging. I think it's more um, one of the things that I'm having maybe some, some difficulty adjusting to in this new role is the limitations of the hospital system and, and the role of the hospital system in, in treating these people. Um, and, and limitations that they have, the scarcity of resources, it sort of gets pushed onto you to magically have a solution and sometimes you don't. Um, you know, you see a lot of what I would say injustices happen, um, people getting shifted and handballed from one one team to another <clears throat> um, because there's there's really nowhere for these these people. You know, they've come in from some sort of secure placement being a nursing home or an SRS and the staff there have found their behavior too challenging to manage. So they've, they've shipped them to, to hospital and, and basically refused to take them back, mm. um, which has been, you know, a very challenging thing to deal with when you, you fully believe that actually that's the best place for them. And when they come to hospital, they're, they're worse because they're in a new confusing environment where, you know, lights are on 24-7 and there's beeping and noises and intrusive nursing doing checks, so their behaviour gets worse, obviously. Yeah. And um, it, can be, it can be difficult trying to navigate that system and not feel so helpless. I thought I was really championing the rights of these people by, by being so obstructive and, and demanding that these places take them back and getting the support of the family. Um, but I've since found that it's been happening at the expense of the mental health and the well-being of the nursing staff that are looking after them on the ward who can't manage. Mm. You know, they're they're in tears. They're having sick ba- sick days. They're unable to manage this difficult patient. Um, so I've had to to balance those competing interests, so to speak, and and think about you know, what's best for the patient, but also what's best for the staff that are looking after them, what's best for the family, what's going to 
get the best outcome, even if it's in a roundabout way? How can we, how can we contain everyone's anxieties, so to speak? And yeah, that's, that's probably the part that I feel, um, is most challenging and most disheartening. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a certain tragedy in that that I feel. There's a huge amount of people that are neglected in that way. Yeah, I think that's, that's something definitely that I've um, experienced in that um, when a client presents where there isn't an obvious solution, um, but there is at a very immediate need and a very you know acute, um, I guess, concern with that client's health that needs to be dealt with. Um, or safety or something that needs to be dealt with very quickly. Um, there are a lot of people around that client who have some level of responsibility or interaction that also they're now dealing with that conflict and that difficulty. And so that kind of raises the kind of intensity in the air around dealing with this patient. And so trying to come in there and be like, this might be a solution is going to be difficult because everyone has some kind of stake or some kind of, um, I don't know, Mm. something that they they need from the outcome and i think we do we do want to offer solutions like it's it's human it's normal we want to we want to say you've come to us we have the expertise this is what you should do mm. and they'll be so thankful for that um coming off of the child and adolescent rotation i think there's a huge amount to be said of just containing them and doing very little. <laughs> it's amazing how people may be very complex, be acutely unwell, the family at the end of their tether, and maybe maybe the, the child doesn't actually want to engage, but just knowing that they're with the team and they have a case manager now, mm. magically things seem to settle in the family, I've yeah. found. Um, even if you sit in silence with this kid for an hour and he doesn't want to talk, you've objectively done nothing for them but just just being that extra level of support seems to contain the anxieties of everyone yeah that's so true i think that's i mean yeah that's a um in a way that is a kind of service that we provide Mm. it's like when there isn't an obvious solution and people don't really know what to do you take on that responsibility and we're like well i don't have a solution either but i'm here and i'm going to be working on it and think about it and just kind of be there um, in a way that maybe um, other people not, might not be able to, might not have the capacity to. And that's a thing in and of itself, that, mm. you know, supporting a person's um, support systems um, and giving them a sense of ease helps that person when they go back to them. Mm. Mm. And I think it speaks a lot also to the fact that, um, you know, you mentioned there, Josh, objectively, it's like we, we haven't really done much or achieved anything. But, um, you know, not to discount the just the, the magnitude of, of you know, just taking a bit of that pressure off that family. Mm. And, yeah, even if it's like an hour of, you know, sitting in, in silence with a young person or, or like, you know, doing not, not a lot, just um, building that relationship, just the, uh, the power of that relationship mm. is, um, is really quite something. And just to know that their burden is now being carried by someone else as well. Mm. Yeah. It's like what we use supervision for sometimes. It's we've got something very challenging that's weighing us down and we offload it, so to speak, onto a supervisor and say, look, now we're both dealing with this. <laughs> and you feel great afterwards. Yeah. You know, they haven't given you magic solutions or yeah. advice, but just to be able to to know that there's someone there uh, taking some of that support mm. from you mm. um, or offering it to you is, is tremendously helpful. It feels you can get through a little bit more. Yeah. For sure. Awesome.
Well, that's a good way to uh, wrap it up, bringing it back to supervision. Yeah. <laughs> that. Yeah. Good at that. But yeah, that was, that was um, I think, you know, it's really, really good insights there from um, from yourself, Josh, and, and you too, Aaron. I thought that was um, it was quite quite a nice nice topic for today's episode. Um, yeah, and yeah, one I think, um, yeah, one that's relevant to every profession within health but, and mental health, I yeah. think, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I hope I wasn't on my soapbox too much. Um, no, no, it was great. This is, we, we brought you here yeah. for the soapbox. That's all we brought you. I feel like I could do, I feel like I could do another three hours of, and another thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think, um, look, Josh, uh, you, you've been a tremendous first guest to have on our podcast. And I actually think you've set the bar uh, really quite high for everyone else who follows. Um, <laughs> <laughs> good. good one for the next guest. Yeah, yeah so... Um, <laughs> <laughs> and that was our first and only guest uh, yeah. for for beer supervision. But um, how about we get to the most important part of the podcast? Yeah, Ooh, and that yes. is the review of the Grand Ridge um, Hatlifter Stout. Um, so again, the Hatlifter Stout is from Merbu North. Merbu <laughs> North, <laughs> classic. Yeah, and I saw this in front of me. This crisp, delicious bottle. <laughs> And I just couldn't help but think, gosh darn, this is going to be so malty and delicious. You're in for a real treat. Can't wait to just grip it and rip it with you boys. Just, just have a little chug a lug. Just have a little, little bevy with the boys on a Thursday night. Little bit of listeners know that uh, Josh actually had this finished seven seconds after he opened. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I. I'm a big fan of this. This is actually amazing. I'm definitely going to get this beer again. Yeah, it's yeah. in the it's in the corner section of uh, Dan Murphy's. Uh, I can draw you a bit of bit of a roadmap if you want there. Um, um, when are we going to get that Dan Murphy sponsorship? Well, yeah. really yeah. give him a thumbs up there. If we yeah. keep if we keep saying the name, then they're going to have to. We're just going to <laughs> yeah, force that's how it works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah, yeah. yeah. oh, sweet. By the uh, by, the end of this podcast, we will be sponsored yeah. by every beer in Australia. Yeah, yeah. It'll, it'll be great. Uh, we'll have our own promo code on the Dan Murphy's website. Yeah. Enter beer review. Yes. <laughs> Get ten percent off. <laughs> Smash that like and subscribe button, guys. Yeah. <laughs> well, considering this beer tastes almost identical to the beer that is my favourite, um, the dark. Dark Ale. Mm, the um, White Rabbit White one. Rabbit one. Yeah. I would give this a pretty high rating. Probably like 4.5. I'll leave the point five for like the magical beer that cures every cancer, I guess. Mm, yeah. Mm. But, you know. Yeah. So it's close enough. Yeah. yeah, no, look, I'm, I, um, as I mentioned earlier, I, I don't drink too many stouts, but this is a stout that I I would happily drink again. Um, and I will, yeah, I'm happy to give this one a four because I thought it was, um, yeah, it was really quite, quite fantastic. Mm-hmm. And for all you... Uh, you know, vegan listeners out there, uh, it's you know, it's a vegan-friendly beer as well. Um, uh, Asambi is not vegan. Oh, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I think I think also there's there's another another symbol on here um, that indicates <clears throat> that I don't think it contains any traces of pregnant women. Oh yeah, um, is that what that one stands that's for? That's what. Yeah, that's yeah. what it means. No, no pregnant women. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. So that, you know, that's that, and that makes. That, I guess that's what makes it vegan. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But, uh, it's always good to know that what I'm drinking has a statistically negligible amount of animal blood in it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Yep. Yeah, yeah no, it fills me with... They got the sticker. It's hard to get. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, Josh, did you, did you give it a number? 
Oh yeah, I'll give it a, a, a again a four out of five. Yeah. Uh, I'm if at a stout, it's probably a five out of five. But I'm mm. a stout person, oh, right. so okay. a, a four out of five general beer, which is. Out of five, the the perfect five out of five would be uh, Furphy, obviously. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's it's twenty percent less good than a Furphy. Yeah. Oh, which was, is good. Yeah, that is good. That's something. It's better good. than bad. It's good. Oh good yeah, it's good. Yeah. yeah. All right. All right. Well, uh, once again, Josh, I think. Um, yeah, Aaron would agree with me, and I, I suspect our listeners will too, that you, you've been a fantastic first guest here on uh, Beer Supervision, and um, I'd go in, in so far as to say that we'd be happy to have you back on again, um, you know, some, somewhere down the line. Uh, you beauty. If, if yeah. You're I mean, you're easily the best guest we've ever had. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe, maybe we, yeah. Can, we, can, uh, we can knock back a, a furphy yeah. in that one and, and get Absolutely. a real, real five yeah, out of yeah, five. Yeah. yeah. Sounds great. All right. Well... Thank you, everyone, uh, for listening to our third podcast. Pretty keen to keep going on this. Me and Jesse um, have been having a great time recording these. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we got another one coming up um, in the next fortnight mm-hmm. um, with a brand new guest. Um, we will leave that a surprise because it's also a surprise to us. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering where you were going with that. I'm like, oh, God, who do we have for the next episode? <laughs> He's going off the script. He's <laughs> gone rogue. Oh. Um, yeah. But we have a whole bunch of guests who are already keen to be on here. So we got heaps coming up. Very excited. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. Fantastic. We will see you in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening. Thank, Thank you. Thanks for listening to Be a Supervision, the podcast where we talk about the joys of working in mental health over a cold brew. We record every two weeks, often with guests from the mental health field. If you could leave us a rating on iTunes, that would really help us out. Or share it with someone who might find it helpful. If you'd like to contact us with feedback or questions, or even just to say hi, definitely do at beersupervisionpodcast at gmail.com. And you can find Beer Supervision on Facebook and Twitter. Our opinions are our own, the beers we drink are chosen just by us, and we don't receive any sponsorships. We'll see you next time. <laughs>